Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 16th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so this is going to be a TV-heavy episode of the podcast today. Um, let's start off with some unfortunate news. HT, give us the latest on Mindhunter. Yes, Mindhunter Season 3 has been put on an indefinite hold by Netflix, and the contracts of the cast members have lapsed with the streaming giant, as David Fincher has shifted his focus to producing the second season of Love, Death, and Robots and shooting his upcoming feature film, Mank. So there is no news yet from Netflix on whether we will get a Mindhunter Season 3 or when we'll get it, or um, even if it's canceled or not, it's kind of in limbo right now. But the hope right now is that it won't uh, stay on hold and won't be canceled. Um, and uh, the cast members have told Deadline that they would be willing to return to the series if they are available. But for now, it's just been put on hold indefinitely. Chris, how devastated are you at this news? Uh, I am. I'm very upset. Uh, you know, my honor is one of my favorite shows. I think it's like the best show on Netflix. Uh, and I, I said this on the other day when we recorded the uh, most anticipated list. Even though I'm excited for a new Fincher movie, I'm not really excited for Mank. Like, I would gladly trade Mank and the other thing he does, that Love and Robots, whatever it's called, show, for another Mindhunter season. And I, I'm really bummed out about this. I really hope he just comes back and does another season eventually. Like, I hope they're serious about it not being canceled and it's just on hold. But this is a this is a major bummer. Yeah, maybe they can do something like uh, like they did with Sherlock, that um, the BBC show with Benedict Cumberbatch, maybe where like you know they sort of come back and get the gang back together as soon as they have uh, enough time to put together a, a worthwhile season kind of thing. I think there were like several years between seasons um, right. of that show. Or, so or at the at the very least, maybe they could do like a, like they did with Deadwood, where they do like a movie to wrap things up on Netflix. I would I'll take anything at this point. Give me something. Mindhunter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How would you guys feel if they brought Mindhunter back, but it wasn't under the uh, 
hand of David Fincher? Like, do you think it would still be as successful? I mean, I, I, I don't want to say no, because I, I don't like the idea that like one man is responsible for everything, but it really seems like he's like the driving force on that show. And the fact that like this is happening sort of confirms that, but I don't know. I'm like, I mean, if they brought back all the usual writers and stuff and cast, I'd probably be fine with it, but I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question because so much of what he does is like set the tone for that show. And since they've already had two seasons of that, you would think that maybe the tone is like already well established enough that somebody else could possibly pick up the baton. But yeah, I think everybody would just be uh, a little bit more comfortable if he was there sort of steering the ship. So um, we'll have to see what the the future of Mindhunter has for us. But uh, let's talk about another TV show that um, is experiencing some trouble. And this is a show that doesn't even exist yet, but one that uh, a lot of people were hoping to see. HT, what's up with the Dark Tower show? Amazon is reportedly not moving forward with a Dark Tower TV series after um, being disappointed by the pilot that they were shown. Um, And uh, it's a series from executive producer Glenn Mazzara. We've heard about this for a while. Um, Sam Strike was set to play the protagonist and Jasper Pakonin was set to play the foil, the the man in black. But um, we hadn't really heard much about this other than some casting reports and uh, some set photos that surfaced last summer. But it seems that the pilot has been shot and uh, has been a little bit of a disappointment for Amazon um, and that will probably not be coming together. So Glenn Mazzara, who was uh, an executive producer on The Walking Dead, was behind this show. And it seems like, I don't know if this means that like the entire concept of a Dark Tower TV show is done, or if it's just that this particular pilot was something that Amazon wasn't interested in. I, I wonder if they might try to give it another shot with somebody else, because this is such a like a recognizable name brand property. Um, Chris, I know you're a big Stephen King fan, obviously, and, and uh, I think you were pretty significantly disappointed with the Dark Tower movie. Um, were you looking forward to a TV show? Do you think that story is, is um, that TV is a better medium for that story? And do you think there's potential there? I mean, it, TV is the right medium for that story, but everything I like the behind the scenes images I saw looked really like cheap looking. And I don't know. I'm one of those rare Stephen King fans who doesn't really love the dark tower that much. I know it has like a lot of uh, love out there from his fans, but I, I, I could never really get into it. So I'm not totally disappointed by this, but you know, yeah, I'm, I, I know there are a, a bunch of fans and, um, yeah, I think you're right, Chris. It just seemed like maybe this wasn't the the uh, maybe this is a blessing in disguise. Like maybe this wasn't the um, configuration of people that we wanted to give uh, the the Dark Tower the justice that it deserves, especially after that movie, which had a lot of really great people involved with it in front of the camera, but um, ended up being yeah a pretty pretty huge disappointment. Uh, well, let's I wonder talk... if oh, go um, ahead. I do want to say I wonder if Amazon is kind of was kind of throwing. Um, a bunch of money at uh, epic fantasy shows that they wanted to uh, sort of have to be the next Game of Thrones and decided that the Dark Tower wasn't kind of worth that time and instead chose to lean into Lord of the Rings, which is uh, coming together quite nicely. Yeah, that's a, a good point too, and I'll um I'm gonna add this to our show notes. Uh, the Lord of the Rings cast um, was announced I think a couple days ago, 
Um, and it's a lot of uh, mostly unknown faces, but a couple of people who you might recognize from Game of Thrones, actually, and, and from a couple other things. Uh, Homeland, I remember one of the cast members was a, a major player in Homeland and 24 and stuff. So I'll, I'll link to that if you want to get the full rundown of um, who the, the Lord of the Rings cast members are. If I read their names, you probably wouldn't recognize them, so it's not going to do any, any good in this context. The cast is quite diverse, too, which is exciting because the books by J.R. Token have never traditionally been uh, very diverse, except in a way that's racially coded very problematically. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that this uh, Amazon series is doing something a little bit different with Lord of the Rings, and we'll see a little bit more, di more diversity along the lines. Yeah, I'm very excited about the the possibilities for that. Uh, I'm also excited about the possibilities of a MacGruber TV show. This is something that I guess has been in the works or in, in loose development for a little while, but Chris, it seems like this thing is actually happening now, right? Right. Uh, it's it's being developed by Peacock, which is the streaming service from NBC Universal, because everyone has their own streaming service now. Um, uh, Will Forte is coming back, obviously, and in, in the plot, uh, MacGruber has been in prison for over a decade for some reason, and he gets out of prison and he goes on a mission to take down a villain from his past. And uh, that's that's enough for me. I will be watching this. So, uh, HD, what's your relationship like with MacGruber? This is a movie that did not make very much money at all at the, the uh, box office when it came out, but it's developed something of a cult following in the years since. Are you on the MacGruber train, or what's your deal with MacGruber? I think I've actually talked about this before on the podcast, but I haven't seen MacGruber. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I don't really have much of a relationship with it, So, but... I, I might check out the movie before the TV series just to see what all the hype is about because I know everyone really loves it. Yeah, I think it, it really, for me, my love of MacGruber is tied, it goes hand in hand with my love of um, like 1980s action movies because that's really what MacGruber is, is really like sort of poking fun at. Um, and a lot of the references, I, I wonder how well it would play um, for somebody who is just sort of like, uh, well, I guess that's another question, HG. What's your what's your relationship with 1980s action movies? Are you like, um, is that is that a, a genre that uh, tickles your fancy? I mean, I enjoy them, and I enjoy how over the top they they occasionally get. I've seen you know some of the core classics like uh, Top Gun, RoboCop, etc. So uh, I uh, I mean, I'm sure I would I would get the references. Um, I just yeah, I haven't seen MacGruber, so I can't really say it for now. But uh, it. It seems, yeah, I'd, I'd be down to see that. Yeah, it's not necessarily a movie that um, that references anything in particular. It's more just like the tone and, and feel uh, and, and like a, a general poking fun at that genre as a whole instead of like a specific thing where it's like a blink and you miss it kind of, oh, wow, that specific thing was from Die Hard or whatever. But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Chris, are you, um, <laughs> I mean, you must be as exhausted as I am at the concept of all of these different streaming services. And I was really hoping that NBC Universal would just be like, all right, we're doing reruns of The Office and that's pretty much it. And I could just ignore it. But it seems like every single one of these has something, one or two big properties that I'm actually genuinely interested in. And I can't, therefore I cannot ignore it in good conscience. What do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's, it's rough because I don't want to subscribe to all these goddamn services. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm privileged in the sense that I, I'm in the media, so if I really, really want to, I can like request a screener and get around it that way. But if I weren't, I'd be like just so like, ugh, I, I can't, I can't afford to subscribe to all these services. Yeah, it's like a real, um, 
I don't know, like a good news, bad news situation. You've got, like, I'm excited about this concept uh, of this show existing, but I just don't, I want it to be on something that I'm already paying for. Damn it. Come on, help me out a little bit, but yeah. Uh, okay, well, speaking of uh, streaming services, let's talk a little bit about HBO Max, which is another one that is going to be debuting later this year. There's a Green Lantern show coming from producer Greg Berlanti. We knew about that, but uh, during the Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour, which is going on right now still, I think, and has been going on for what seems like a week at this point, uh, Berlanti and, and um, some of the people who run... Uh, HBO Max and DC Universe and the streaming services and all that stuff gave a couple updates about what we can expect from this Green Lantern show. And since I know that's a character that has gotten his own movie and um, has a very successful comics run and all that stuff, I figured some of our listeners might be interested in what they can expect from this Green Lantern show. Uh, Somebody who is involved with HBO Max said, We're in the early stages of talking to Berlanti about it, but he did say that the series so far is going to span several decades and focus on the origin story of two major Green Lanterns on Earth. Uh, We don't know exactly which versions of the character they're talking about yet, Um, but also this show is going to uh, venture into the story in space of a Green Lantern favorite character of Sinestro, and that is the villain character that was played by Mark Strong in the 2011 movie. Uh, Greg Berlanti, of course, was one of the writers behind that movie, but has since gone on to create the Arrowverse on the CW and has, you know, his own, his own, uh, I guess, success with superheroes on the small screen. So I think people are a little bit more excited about this version of Green Lantern than the, the one that starred Ryan Reynolds and was uh, sort of a famous bomb. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I don't really know much about Green Lantern personally. Are either of you, like, uh, closet Green Lantern fans that I don't know about somehow? Closet Green Lantern <laughs> fans? I have, I, you know, I have a pretty just, you know, general relationship with it, so I can't say I'm a huge fan of Green Lantern. I know the basics, and I've watched the, some of the animated films from mm. DCAU as well. Um, but I do want to add that there was a... Uh, a nod to the Green Lantern sort of world and TV series in the most recent uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover episode. So I think that Berlanti is definitely seeding in uh, the Green Lantern series already. Interesting. Uh, Chris, I suspect you're you're probably um, apathetic at best when it comes to Green Lantern. Yeah, I don't really know much about Green Lantern, so I know he has a lantern. That's about it. And he's green. I guess that's another thing I know. That's really I, it. I don't know. HC isn't even accurate to say that he has a lantern. I think he just has a ring, right? No, or the, is, well, the, is lantern the lantern is like, like... what... It, it's what powers his ring. Okay. Like that's the thing that has like the green energy or whatever. Where does he keep uh, the lantern? Is it like in his he, pocket? Is it like chilling at at home? I don't know. Um, uh, so it has like a wi- It's like a Wi-Fi signal from the lantern that gives him the power. <laughs> I mean, probably. <laughs> it's like, you know, one of those chargers that you can put your phone next to and it'll charge your phone. Like, right. You know, those, those oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I do say, I want to say, though, that um, the most familiar, familiarity I have with Green Lantern is through the Justice League animated series when they had Jon Stewart. So every time they try to bring Green Lantern back, it's always uh, Hal Jordan. And I'm like, I don't care about this white dude. I want Jon Stewart. So I, I would love to see... A, like John Stewart of here again because he was great and um, uh, that's the familiar that I have with this, that character in the series. Oh right, John Stewart, the the Black Green Lantern, right? Like yes. he's an African American character who is also a part of the Green Lantern Corps, I guess. Just he's not like a Green Lantern that is actually a Black Lantern. Just to clarify for anybody who might have been confused there. Uh, okay, so one more thing I wanted to mention here is we don't really know, and I don't even know enough details to be able to 
concisely um, explain this to everybody because it's so it's so still uh, very much up in the air. But in terms of like DC Universe subscribers, um, the show is supposed to be on HBO Max, but there's been a lot of back and forth about like what is going to happen to DC Universe, which is its own separate standalone streaming service that uh, Warner Media has, where a lot of DC content is on there, and they have their own original shows and all of that. Once HBO Max happens, how are those things going to integrate? And uh, the answer is we don't know yet. Like they're still <laughs> sort of working it out, but you can read some quotes from the people involved in that same story in the show notes if you want to get, uh, I mean, I was going to say get some more clarity on it, but I really don't know if you're going to get much more clarity on it than what I just said. So anyway, uh, we'll, we'll keep you guys updated when um, HBO and, and uh, Warner Media figure out exactly what the game plan is going to be there. I think they have a few more months to figure it out because HBO Max is not supposed to come online until sometime this May, I think. So, uh, all right, continuing on in the TV realm, um, HBO gave a the green light to a Game of Thrones prequel show called House of the Dragon. Uh, this was last October when this happened. And surprisingly, they passed on a another Game of Thrones prequel series that had been in development for a long time. That one was developed by um, Jane Goldman, who was one of the co-writers of Kick-Ass and I think Stardust. Uh, Naomi Watts was in that pilot. There was a whole, they did like a whole thing where they announced, uh, announced all the cast members and it seemed like it was going to be moving forward and they ended up passing on that show and going straight to series with House of the Dragon instead. And Casey Bloys, who is the head of programming at HBO, sort of explained why they ended up going with this other House of the Dragon show instead of picking this the the original one that was sort of like in the works for a little bit longer, it seemed. Um, that show, the, the Jane Goldman one that was canceled, uh, was set to take place thousands and thousands of years before the events of the Game of Thrones show that we saw, but this new one is only going to take place 300 years before that and uh, is going to follow the members of House Targaryen. So... Um, Bloys was basically saying it was a big challenge that Jane Goldman took on. There was a lot of world invention because she set her pilot 8,000 years before the current show. It required a lot of thinking about what it would look like back then. How would people talk and relate to each other and what was the mythology underneath? It was a really big swing. He went on to essentially say that like the pilot just didn't really gel. There wasn't anything particularly wrong with it, but uh, it was easier for them to go with House of the Dragon because it's based on a George R. R. Martin book. Uh, he said, we had text from George R. R. Martin and had the Targaryen history. Uh, there was a bit more of a roadmap. It was an easier decision to say, all right, let's go straight to series. So um, the book that uh, House of the Dragon is based on is called Fire and Blood. It's basically like a, uh, a history of the Targaryen family. So if anybody you know has been uh, sort of jonesing for some more Game of Thrones since that show went off the air, that's the latest update there. Um, House of the Dragon is going to be run by Ryan Condal, who is responsible for the show Colony, and frequent Game of Thrones director Miguel Sapochnik and uh, George R. R. Martin himself is going to be um, one of the co-creators of the show. So uh, the latest is that it's supposed to debut or expected to debut sometime in 2022. So we have a little bit, a uh, little bit longer to wait um, until that show actually comes on the air. So uh, one more show. I guess I'm glad that we have this configuration of people on today's episode of the podcast because I want to give a quick update also on season two of Watchmen. And all three of us talked about uh, Watchmen for all of season one. And, yeah, uh, Watchcast. Really, yeah, we really loved that show, as anybody who listened to those episodes knows. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about what's going to happen with a potential second season of Watchmen, and Damon Lindelof has been very clear 
clear about his reluctance to come back for a second season of the show because he really felt like he put everything he had into the first season. Um, but uh, Casey Bloys, again, the, the head of programming at HBO, said... Um, it's so much from uh, Lindelof's brain. Obviously, I know there is underlying IP, but the reinvention and the world is so much from his brain that it's hard to imagine somebody else doing it. Not to say it can't be done, but right now I'm just giving uh, Damon the time he needs to think about what he wants to do creatively next. So um, there was some discussion that like maybe... Um, I know Lindelof himself said that uh, he would be okay if somebody else came on board and, and had their own idea for Watchmen and, and sort of like picked up the baton from him and, and he would step back and somebody else could run the show because it's a, a popular property and the show did very well for HBO and he sort of, I guess, was under the assumption that the network would not want to wait around for him forever. But it seems like Casey Police is saying, we, uh, you know, he, he's basically saying, I can't imagine anybody else doing it. So he's just giving Lindelof enough time to sit back and see if he is struck by inspiration for uh, a second season. So I, I assume all of us think that this is probably the best approach here, or do you guys, am I wrong about that? Um, Chris, what do you think? I guess, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I remain, I mean, yeah, it shouldn't happen without Lindelof. So I don't know. I, know, I, I guess I, I just assumed that because HBO, because the show performed so well in its first season, HBO was not going to be willing to to sit back and wait. And they were just going to be like, all right, we got to get more of this on the air, like sort of like a true detective season two kind of um, scenario. And I, I personally think the second season of that show was a, a huge disaster. So I'm glad they're not going that route. But um, HT, what do you make of all this? I think that the first season had such a great complete arc that I can't see them continuing that story. That being said, I did uh, articulate my uh, dissatisfaction with the way that the series ended up um, exploring the legacy of American imperialism in Vietnam and the sort of uh, the lack of fleshing out of like the refugees uh, who would eventually become like Lady True. And um, so I think that if there were to be a second season, I would really be interested in seeing that story be told or that be expanded upon. And um, I think Lindelof, if he were to like hand off the reins to someone else, it could be uh, to a showrunner or a producer of color who could explore that kind of story mm -hmm. in a in a great way. Um, I do think that is very much like Lindelof's baby, but um, if that were to happen, that's how I wish it would go. Um, but yeah, I, I would rather it be like sort of a different story and something that uh, tackles more, some more of those social issues more than just like uh, the eventual sort of Dr. Manhattan's plotline that kind of took over the, the latter half of this first season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think I saw somebody on Twitter suggest that like maybe they could do um, Dan Dryberg in jail and like a prison industrial complex kind of uh, an exploration of that as a possible second season. Um, so maybe a combination of those two ideas would result in something really interesting. So, uh, you know, if you need any ideas, Damon Lindelof, obviously we're the people to come to. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to our, our final story of the day. And this is uh, the only movie related story that we're really going to be talking about on today's episode. Um, Chris, Colin Trevorrow's Star Wars script has leaked online. And uh, what do you think about this thing? Tell us what the big differences are between this and what we actually got with Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Right. So the, the script, which is called Duel of the Fates, it's out there. Um, uh, 
it leaked in the sense that some people have it, but it's not like you can just like go grab it off of, off the internet. Not yet. I'm sure it'll eventually it'll leak. But uh, one person who who found it pretty much gave a rundown in a video, and then that rundown got summarized on Reddit. And there are a lot of details. Um, I'd advise you know people to read the Reddit thread and also the story I wrote to get a lot of them. But weirdly enough, it sounds better on paper you know i i it's it's easy to say ah this this would be a better movie but we really don't know that and you know nothing against colin trevorrow but he doesn't exactly have the best track record when it comes to to movies um you know i know jurassic world is a huge hit but a lot of people pretty much agree that it's not really that great of a movie and i hate jurassic world fallen kingdom even more i think that's a really bad movie. So I don't want to jump to conclusions and be like, ah, this would have been a better film, but on paper, it sounds a lot better in terms of it would have continued, not just the force awakens story, but it also would have continued the last Jedi story. Um, it gives all the characters a lot more to do. You know, Rose is actually a character in the story. Unlike, uh, the rise of Skywalker where she just like hangs out at the base and does nothing the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and best of all, at least in my humble opinion is that it keeps Kylo Ren as, you know, the, the big bad of the piece. There's no emperor. There's a scene where they uh, they find a hologram of the emperor, but it's like an old recording. It's not like he's still alive and hanging out with his bone fingers attached to a <laughs> stupid ass crane or whatever he was attached to. I don't know what it was. Um, but you know, the plot is very much just about Ray trying to both stop Kylo Ren and also sort of turn him back to, to the light away from the dark side. And uh, I, I still think this would have been controversial because a lot of people really wanted that Kylo Ren redemption, which we did get in Rise of Skywalker, but it was done very poorly. Uh, the Trevorrow script doesn't do that at all. Basically, there's a big battle at the end, and Force ghosts of, of Luke and Yoda and Obi-Wan are all there with Rey trying to turn Kylo Ren back to the light, but it, it doesn't work, and he ends up dying. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, there's there's all the battles and the resistance wins, and, um, you know, it, it, it's not like a great alternative there there are still based on you know what 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 i've read there are still a lot of problems it it still sounds really convoluted and really needlessly complicated and there's still a reliance on MacGuffins, which i really really hate like there's an entire subplot where they're trying to find some sort of thing to unjam their their broadcasts or so it's just it's like i don't i don't i don't care (laughs) so uh but a lot of this sounds a lot better than what we got. It sounds, you know, thematically it continues what was set up at the end of the last Jedi. It gives the characters a lot more of a, more of closure. Um, you know, I don't know. So again, we, we, we will never know if this would have been better because the movie's never going to be made, but at least on paper, it sounds a lot more promising than what we actually got, which was, not good. No offense. No offense to our editor in chief, Peter Serretta, who thinks this is the best movie ever made. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he, even he would go that far, but I, I know he does love this movie, and I know that a lot of our listeners love this movie too. Um, HT, what do you make of these differences? Does this sound like something? And again, you know, th- there's no way we can make a value judgment of like what the eventual movie would be, but um, just based on you know what little information we have about this, um, does this story intrigue you more than the one that we ultimately got? 
Yeah, for sure. I think it's a much more challenging film than what we got with uh, Rise of Skywalker and a film that, like Chris said, picked up on the themes of both Force Awakens and Last Jedi, as opposed to Rise of Skywalker, which basically ignored everything that uh, Last Jedi did. Um, and I think that um, this I'm one of those who really, really hated Jurassic World. I think it's a trash movie and uh, was not excited about Trevorrow, but this script or the details of the script have um, sort of le- warmed me a little to what he was trying to do with this mo- with this uh, movie. And while I do think it's kind of messy, I, I think it could have been like uh, cleaned up a little bit to have a really strong story. But I especially, um, so I was always skeptical of a Kylo Ren redemption, especially after sort of the, some of the more heinous crimes that he commits at the end of Force Awakens. And um, I thought that, and I, so I was not really against it. I, I didn't think that it could be pulled off very well and it wasn't pulled off well. And I actually quite liked the idea of him not achieving redemption at the end. Um, and I also really enjoyed the more of a presence from both Rose Tico, she going on a, her going on an adventure with BB-8, I think, as well as the greater presence from uh, Luke Skywalker as a force ghost who um, basically spends the film like kind of pestering and tormenting and haunting Kylo Ren. I think that would have been a really interesting dynamic and uh, would have picked up too on the uh, line that he says in The Last Jedi where he says, like, I'll see you around, kid. And mm-hmm. I think it would have been, that would have been such a great movie just to see Mark Hamill again, just, you know, um, being, continuing a great role. And um, so, yeah, I, I was really intrigued. I, I liked the script a lot more than what we got with Rise of Skywalker. It felt less, fan servicey and um i think that it paid more respect to ray's arc as well um as opposed to just kind of making her i don't know i don't even know what she her arc was in rise of skywalker she's uh, a, she's a palpatine obviously <laughs> <okay>. and <laughs> yeah that was the other that's the other huge difference uh in this script is that uh trevorrow and his co-writer whose name i don't have in front of me uh, right Derek connelly right they flat out say multiple times in their script that Ray really is descended from no one. And that's such a better idea. I don't, I, I, you know, I, I'm willing to concede a lot of things to people who like rise of Skywalker, but I will never be okay with this idea that, Oh, it turns out she's actually Palpatine's granddaughter. Like it's, that's so stupid. I'm sorry. It's just really <laughs> dumb and it should not have happened. Yeah, I think I agree, HT, that um, w- with your description or your um, assessment that this is uh, would have maybe been a more challenging movie. Um, I think that is something that just interests me on on a level that is a little bit more than what we ended up getting. Um, my understanding is this this version of the script that's going around or the summary of it that's going around. Um, I think they said it was written a little bit before, like just before Carrie Fisher passed away. So some of her involvement uh, yeah, would obviously. Oh, go ahead. It, it's dated, um, I think, 11 days before Carrie Fisher died. So this was basically turned in right before she died, which right. is like no one's fault. Obviously, like they, they got handed a bad hand, basically, because yeah. Leah has like a major presence in this script. And obviously they had to change that. Yeah. And who knows what would have changed, you know, in, in the rest of this story with the reconfiguration that would have had to happen because of Carrie Fisher's death, too. So, you know, not I, I just don't want people to be to draw it as like a a clear line in the sand of like this thing could have been better. And this thing is obviously worse because there's so many um, 
extra factors that go into making a movie and this was clearly an early draft of the script like there are several times you know look at jj abrams himself he's like one of the most famous filmmakers who relies so heavily on finding the movie as he's making it and and reshoots and all that stuff to really hone in and perfect things and i I think i don't know there's something slightly unfair about um comparing these two this early script and the the final thing not that not that i'm saying that we're being unfair i just think the internet at large i just don't want people to um to yeah just draw that line so firmly and and jump into camps i think you know it's a little bit more nuanced than just uh one thing is great and one thing is trash so um as with most things on the internet but uh i don't know maybe i'm i'm uh, preaching to the choir or maybe i'm shouting into deaf ears here because i i don't know if uh if our society is at a point where we're willing to to operate that way and, and acknowledge that nuance exists but uh anyway what a great note to go out on guys um that's gonna do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, HC, let's start with you. You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui, and you can find my podcast, The Millennial Falcon, on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Nice. Chris, how about you? Uh, I am also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 uh, I am writing at SlashFilm.com, too. You can find my stuff at uh, Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stuff, uh, the stories that we talked about on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And if you do that, please remember to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will talk to you tomorrow.